Our reading is from the Good News According to Luke, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you remain standing, let's pray together. Father, we pray that 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 we've just sung would be true. Father, we pray that we'll behold our God seated on his throne and come and worship and adore him. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you'd help us to get a fresh glimpse of you and like Mary would turn that into praise in our hearts and in our lives. Father, speak to us this morning through your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Face mask off, glasses on, so I don't steam up in advance. As I was preparing uh, this sermon this morning, my mind went back with some amusement to an incident that happened 50 years ago. A little over 50, I'm sad to say. I found myself as one of 25 boys in the school hall um, being on the receiving end of a lecture on the value of Latin. (laughs) I was in a class that had an opportunity to take a second language and we had to choose between Latin and German. 25 of us had chosen German and 5 had chosen Latin. Clearly it wasn't going to work for the school in that way. And I have to say I have given similar lectures myself um, since then. But 25 of us were subjected to a lecture on the value and importance of Latin. 24 of us were unconvinced. (laughs) I was one of the 24. Had I done Latin, I would have known that this passage that we had read to us is known as the Magnificat because it begins in Latin, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul doth magnify the Lord, as how it's written in the older versions of the Bible. And this passage that we're looking at this morning has become a key part of our services, of our praise for centuries in the Western Church. And it's very easy for us to take it for granted and just see it as part of the Christmas story. 
So we're going to look at it this morning, and if you've got your Bible with you, please do open it or find it on your phone or wherever you can access it. And we're going to look at this passage, and you'll see that it uh, breaks down different parts. But while you're finding it, I just want to fill you in on what you've missed. Because Matthew's gospel, sorry, Luke's gospel begins with Zechariah in the temple, as it was his family's turn, being confronted by an angel and told that his elderly wife Mary was going to give birth to a son. Um, and in modern parlance, Zechariah was gobsmacked. The second part, the second story that we encounter in Luke's gospel is of Mary being confronted by the angel Gabriel and being told that she's going to give birth to a son. If Elizabeth was elderly, Mary was young, and that news was clearly a shock to her. The news that she was pregnant, it didn't just stop there, because the angel says, you'll conceive and give birth to a son, you're to call him Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will, God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Mary Shocked she was pregnant, but this clearly was going to be no ordinary baby that she was going to be carrying. And uh, Mary, as she begins to come to terms with this, goes to visit Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth hears Mary come into the house and hears the greeting, Mary, Elizabeth, with this prophetic word, says to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. And in response to that, Mary comes out with this hymn of praise that we know as the Magnificat that we've had read to us this morning. <coughs> now, it's, it's well crafted, and uh, you may want to think, could you have come up with a hymn of praise on the spur of the moment as well devised as this? And the answer is probably not. And there is a sense that perhaps this was written by Mary subsequently. But what is quite clear about it is that it isn't a Christian hymn of praise. The themes through it are very Judaistic, and there's various terms and phrases in there that reflect that. So it's not like Luke has reinvented this story and put this song of praise into the mouth of Mary because it doesn't contain a Christian perspective as such. It's very much a Jewish perspective. So we're going to look at this song of praise that Mary utters and it falls into three sections. The first one, Mary gives praise for what God's done for her. In the second what part, she gives praise for what he's done for everyone. And in the third part, she gives particular praise for what he's done for his people, Israel. And you can see that Jewish theme coming through there. So if you look in verse 48, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. And she gives two reasons. The first one is because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's been mindful. Now, we hear about mindfulness, don't we? It doesn't mean that he you know, sat around did a bit of colouring. But he saw Mary, insignificant, lowly, poor, servant as she was. And he saw her and he chose her. 
That's what mindful means. He looked upon her. He spotted her. And Mary gives thanks that even though she was insignificant, God saw her. You see, there's nothing special about Mary. She was just another Jewish girl, another probably teenage Jewish girl. Someone else could have been chosen by God, but he chose her. The population of Israel at the time was probably about three quarters of a million. So there were plenty of others to choose from then. He could have chosen someone else next year. He could have chosen someone else the year before. But God saw her and chose her. And Mary identifies that instead of being an anonymous servant girl, her future will be different. I suspect she didn't really understand how famous she would become. She probably didn't understand how her, who she was would go around the world, be known by everyone. Didn't realise the sense of worship she herself would receive from some. But she does recognise that she's insignificant, that she's just very ordinary, and God has chosen her. And I wonder sometimes, do we feel that the church is made up of super-Christians, Christian heavyweights, and we're just a bit sort of second-class or third-class as a Christian? God sees people, sees you, sees me, despite our insignificance, and knows us and calls us. And that's what God did to Mary. So don't feel overlooked. Don't feel insignificant, because in God's eyes, we're all very significant. But the second thing she praises him for, and we find in verse 49, is that the Mighty One has done great things for her. That it's not just a case that he's selected her, but he's done some pretty impressive things. He's got her pregnant, and how he does that, we don't know. But it's a miracle. The baby that you're carrying is clearly going to be very special. And God has given her the blessing of carrying his son, Jesus, who will be the saviour of the world. And Mary recognises that giving her this child isn't anything that she's done. But it's what God has done for her. He's got her pregnant. He's given this designation to the son, to the baby she's carrying. He's going to make that baby great. And Mary recognises that this is God using his power. It's not because there was anything special about her, but because God has done great things for her. You see, in the light of the randomness and selection and the miracle that God has brought about in getting her pregnant, and the poignancy of the baby that she's carrying, in the light of those things, as Mary looks and thinks and ponders those, she can only be awed and wowed. And her response, we find at the end of verse 49, is to recognise the holiness and the greatness of God, and to see that 
and to worship before him. When we get a glimpse of how God is working and what he's doing and his deeds and his acts, our response can only be to be wowed and awed and to fall down like Mary in worship. But the second thing she goes on to praise for is not what she's done just for her, but what he's done for everyone. And we find this in verses 50 to 53. And again, it falls into two parts, because in the first 50, we find that what God has done for those who fear him is that from generation to generation, time after time, his mercy extends towards them. It's very easy, isn't it, to think that we get God's mercy because there's something special about us. There's not, and that comes through this passage. The thing is, if you fear God, it's not one of being frightened you're going to get hit or bullied or something like that. It's a sense of respect and a recognition of who you are and who God is. And out of that recognition of that relationship comes that sense of looking to him and dependency upon him. And year after year, generation after generation, what you find is that God's mercy, his forgiveness, his protection, extends to you again and again and again. And Mary recognises that as a Jewish girl, but she recognises she's not unique in it, that it is for all of us to receive that mercy if we fear him. But to those who don't fear him, we find in verses 51 and 52, 53, sorry, 52 and 53 as it goes on, to those who don't fear him, then very much that the apple cart becomes upset. And the normal order of things gets reversed by the mighty deeds of God. So we find in verse 51 that he said he's performed mighty deeds by his arms, by his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Now, pride's an interesting thing, isn't it? You see people who are proud. Um, I don't want to sound judgmental, but you know, big car, personalised number plate, you know it's me coming. There's a sense of, if you've got a personalised number plate, please don't take it back. I'm sure you're not like that, and I don't want to appear uh, condemnatory. But you know, you know what I mean? You get the picture. You, know, you can see it's me driving this car. Look and respect. But there's also pride, isn't there, that thinks, well, we're not like them. You remember when that issue, that incident in the temple where people give in what they offered and things like that. And, and Jesus points out for the Pharisees saying, you know, thank goodness we're not like that person. And we think that's awful. But I think if we're honest, there's times when we think like that. We're not like them. We're better than them. And we look down on people. That's 
pride in innermost thoughts. Pride also when we think we can do it on ourselves, don't we? That we're not dependent on... I was in a conversation this last week with a, a group of people and um, someone said, well, it's lucky that this hadn't happened. And someone was one of the other parts of the conversation, oh, he said, I, I don't believe in luck. You make your own luck. Now, I knew what he meant. And, and you know, there's a sense of, you know, you, you take preparations, you do things, you work hard, so you don't need to depend on chance. I understand that. But there's also an arrogance about it, isn't there? I make my own luck. I make what happens. I don't need God. It wasn't, don't think they realised they were saying that. But I make things happen. See, there's a pride in our innermost thoughts. And Mary said that Jesus or God in his kingdom will scatter those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. They're going to be lost blown away, forgotten. Verse 52 goes on, that he'll bring down rulers from their thrones, but by contrast will lift up the humble. See that reversal of the order of things? And in verse 53, the hungry will be filled, but by contrast, the rich are sent away empty. You see, Mary in this sense of praise is recognising that God is a mighty God who intervenes, who does things. And his doing things is establishing a kingdom where the normal order of things is being turned upside down. Where the way the, way, the, way the world does things no longer holds. And this is the kingdom that God is establishing. Now, there's a very interesting, you know, if you've got time and you want to research at home, you can look into the tense of the verbs that Mary's using. And what she's saying is, this isn't yet happened. You know, the rulers still rule, and the humble are still, you know, down below them at the moment. But she says it with a confidence, as in a past tense, because she knows it's going to happen. And these are the acts that God is going to do as he establishes his kingdom. And I suppose there's a thought challenge for us this morning. Is, is that the sort of kingdom that we have in mind when we think of the kingdom of God? Or do we think of a kingdom going on very much along as it is? with a bit of modification. Do we see that total revolution reversal? Or do we see just a version of what we've got now? But the third area that Mary turns to for praise is what God has done for his people. And we find in verse 54 that she says, he's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Now this word helped uh, is a bit tame. You know, it, it helps them to solve, you know, you help someone if you carry the shopping bag, don't you? It isn't that, it's a bit more than that. It, you know, it's holding them up in the gale that's knocking them over. It's supporting them. In the hurricane, when the fence is going, you know, you, you're pushing the post up. 
making sure he's you know, that's what God has done. He's not just carried the shopping bag. It's a lot more than that. He has sustained his people Israel. If you look back and you read the Old Testament, you read the stories, they could have easily been wiped out. They were absolutely useless on occasions. They didn't know what was good for them and what wasn't. They made the wrong decisions, did stupid things. But God held them together, sustained them, held them up. That's what kept them going. And why did he do that? Because he remembered the promise that he'd made to Abraham. That's the God who was so. You see, we don't have a God who forgets what he's promised. Who six months later, six years later, 60 years later, can't remember what he said. We've got a God who remains truthful and honest to those promises. So as you read through this song of praise, there's no mention of the church, no mention of the Christian world, but it's the same God with the same faithfulness and the same sorts of promises. And if you recognise your God through these verses, because it's the same God that was with the Jews, with Mary, and in the church today. And that's what we need to look into and to reflect on. You see, it's great news, isn't it? I don't know how you see yourself as a Christian. Do you think you're pretty successful? Pretty good at it? Are you, or you, are you a bit of a failure like me? Do you feel that actually sometimes... You just make the same mistake again. You feel sometimes you just seem to be repeating the same patterns of failure. Well, the great news from this is that it isn't your Christian faith that holds you up and sustains you. It's God. And just as he remembered his promise to Abraham and he held the people of Israel together through the storms through which they went. He holds you up and he holds me up and our Christian faith, whatever botch we make of it, and however hopeless we are, he sustains us. So we've got a sense of Mary's praise for what is done for her, for what is done for everyone, and what is specifically done for his people, and that's how this song of praise is constructed. But I also think it's a bit like a picture in an art gallery. You know, you go to a big art gallery and you see people crowded round the pictures, and you, you go and stand close, and you can see the brush strokes, and you see the person who's painted and their signature in there, and you can see the, the paint being layered, one layer on top of each other, and you get a picture. And that's a bit what we've done so far as the detail. But then you walk backwards and you look at it from a distance and you get the overall view of what the painter's trying to convey. And I think as we do that this morning, we need to, yes, delve into this prayer, this song of praise that we've done, 
But we also need to stand back and say, what are the themes that run right through this song of praise that Mary's drawing our attention to? And the first one is that it's God who does this. It's not because Mary's done something or anyone else has done something. It's because God has done this. It's not Mary's luck in being chosen. It's not Mary's fertility. It's not her antenatal care. It's God. It's God who has produced the pregnancy. It's God who's made the baby who will become. It's God. It's not someone's revolutionary zeal that is setting up a social justice society that's going to make the rich be overthrown and the underprivileged rise. It's God. It's God who extends mercy. It's God who scatters the proud. It's God who brings down rulers. God who lifts up the humble. And God who feeds the hungry. God is in control. God is the driving force. And Mary recognises that. And that runs right through this song that God is driving. Nothing that she's done, nothing that we can do, it's God is driving. And I have to say to you, you know, we're all tempted to become backseat drivers, aren't we? And it's no different in this respect. Sorry, some of you might not understand what a backseat driver is. It's a very English expression for someone who is a passenger in a car who tells the driver what they should do to drive better. We're very good at telling God what he should be doing. Well, how he could do things better. That isn't what comes through here. It's that God is the driving force and is the driver. See, at Christmas, there's lots of human activities and there's things to do. Cars to ride, presents to buy, cooking to be done entertain to take place, etc., etc. And we stress about how we're going to get them all done. And very easy for us, Christmas becomes a story of human endeavour. Can I get all these things done in this short period of time? And there's a danger, isn't there, that we take that across into the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story, although it contains individual human beings, isn't a story of individual human beings. It's a story about God and God intervening and God coming to this earth and God producing a plan for the salvation of mankind. Yes, the individual human beings had their part and they had their part to play, but essentially it's a story about God because God is the driving force and that's the first thing that comes through. The second thing that comes through is the value of humility. And we find this at several times in this song of praise. In verse 48, God's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Verse 51, he's scattered those who are proud. In verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. The virtue of being humble and showing humility is written large 
in this. It's a taken, it's a given. One of those things that's taken as being accepted. The value of humility. And I thought as I was preparing this, how much that's in contrast to what we experience today, to what we see around us, where attention and focus goes to those who shout the loudest, where we're told we need to big ourselves up. And yeah, and there's, you know, we all need to have high self-esteem. I'm not saying that. But essentially, we don't need to make ourselves bigger than we are. There's a danger that we value self-confidence so much that we value those who are brash and bold. And there's a danger also that we confuse what we are with who we are. A few years ago, I had to uh, entertain the Major General Robert Brims over dinner. If you've never heard of Robert Brims, um, he was the person who led the British forces in the invasion of Iraq. He was the after-dinner speaker. I had to make sure that he got to the after-dinner speaker stage without any mishap happening. He did not need a lot of entertaining. He was very entertaining himself. He told the story about invading Iraq and whatever you think about that, the responsibility on him and the decisions and empowering and leadership, that's what he was there to talk about. But he said at one stage, he said, but to my mother, she still sees you as a seven-year-old boy who walked into her kitchen with muddy Wellingtons. And he said, you know, here I am with all this power and authority in charge of the army, but to my mother, I'm still a seven-year-old boy in muddy Wellingtons in her kitchen. I don't think he was a Christian. But he understood something about humility. Because we're very easy to see ourselves for what we are rather than the reality of who we are. And going through this passage of praise is the value of humility. Mary is recognized for her humility. And God establishes a kingdom where the humble are exalted, not the proud. So how does humility fit with you and with me? How would you rate yourself out of 10 on a humility or humbleness scale? What score would you give yourself? I'll let you think about that. Can I say to you, though, if you've got a score more than five, you probably don't really understand what humility is. Because of the nature of it is that we don't big ourselves up. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, wrote these words in chapter 6. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He then goes on a bit more, verse later. For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. That's what humility is about, isn't it? It starts with seeing the right relationship between us and God, recognising who he is and seeing who we are. And as we get that right, then our view of relationships with those around us comes into the right focus as well and the right perspective. But it needs that transformation and that renewing of the mind. 
Because if we're honest, in each one of us, there's a natural desire to want to think of ourselves as better than we are. Chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus is an impressive CV. But Mary was chosen because she was humble. And that's the value of humility. The third theme that goes through this passage, this song of praise, is that of praise. Praise runs all the way through it. Praise for what God's done for Mary, for all of us, for his people. And it's important, I think, that we get a glimpse of that and we get a sense of that. Because we're all, but naturally, egocentric. We think about ourselves first and we're affected by what goes on around us. And our worlds revolve around ourselves, the members of our families and our close friends. And often our praise reflects that. Or our lack of praise reflects that. If things are going well with us, we're keen to praise God. If things are going well with our friends, the members of our families, but if people are going through hard times, our spirits sink. If our friends are experiencing difficulties, if there's sickness in the family, our spirits sink. Mary wasn't egocentric. She recognised what God had done for her, but she also recognised what God had done for everyone. And done for his people. And what I say to you this morning as we close is, do you need to sense, expand that sense of praise? That we don't just get blinkered by what's going on for us, but we look what God is doing with other people, with his church, worldwide, with people we don't know, and expand our horizons a bit. So we don't get narrowed down by thinking, here we are, going to another bout of coronavirus. But we look to see what God is doing and his greatness and further afield. Mary had a broad and expansive view of what God does. And I sometimes wonder whether we need to stretch ours a bit that we're too confined with what we see right in front of us and don't look further afield. This song of praise has been handed on down the generations because Mary, in her humility, saw something of God and reflected that. And our prayer this morning is as we look at this, as we go through Christmas and remember these words, that again we get a fresh glimpse of God, his greatness, his power, the kingdom he's bringing. And that praise rises up within us, not just because things are going well, but because of what he's done through history and through what he's doing across the world right now. And that's what we need to cling on to. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this song of praise of Mary. We thank you for the depth of it and what it contains. But Father, we pray 
that you would help us to show Mary's humility in our relationships. That you'd help us to remember that it's you who moves, you who works, you who does things. And out of that sense of humility and recognition, that you create a spirit of praise in us. Not just because things are good with us at the moment, but because of who you are. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen.